Go ahead and grab a seat if you want. It's good to see you. Good morning. There's several of you I haven't met, and uh, man, I'd love to get to meet you after the service. My name is Luke, and I'm one of the pastors. I get to teach you today, and uh, we're going to be looking in 1 John 2 today. We've taken the last two weeks as a little bit of a reprieve. We finished the book of Ruth. Next week, we start the book of Galatians, and we're real excited about that. If you're new here, or you've only come once or twice, maybe you haven't caught on to this, but we teach all the way through books of the Bible, and we've already knocked out a few books of the Bible. We've done Colossians, uh, James, Nehemiah, Ruth. I feel like I'm forgetting one or two. Um, But we start Galatians anyway. We start Galatians next week, and I'm really looking forward to that. when, that book has been provocative in human history. It was one of the, the pegs that was responsible for a lot of the controversy in the Protestant Reformation. It is no less provocative today. It's no less um, scandalous for people today. So I'm looking at getting into that and seeing how it works with us in Knoxville, Tennessee in 2013. But uh, if you're turning to First John 2 and you have big hands, you can stick another finger in Philippians 2. We're going to be there as well. Um, I think those are going to be the two passages that help us see Jesus a bit more clearly. Uh, I've been thinking all week uh, how interesting it is to me that we will think things and we will feel things that will never, ever, ever, ever come out of our mouth. It's almost like we live two different lives, right? There's the things that we say to everybody and then the things that we just don't say to everybody. But But we feel it and we think it. Um, before I was a Christian, I was at a youth conference type camp thing. I don't even remember. I don't even know why I was there. Um, but I was at this youth rally type portion of it and this youth evangelist with the spiked hair and it was all bleached and he was like 50 years old and he was using slang that we, we quit using like a few years back and he was doing the best he could. He came up with this illustration that really stuck in my head. He said, what if, what if all of you had a screen? on your forehead, and everything you thought was displayed on that screen. And I thought, oh, well, I don't know that I really like that very much. I don't know that I'd be too much into that whole thing, you know? For the whole world to see what I'm really feeling and really thinking would be bothersome to me. I mean, yeah, we have depravity, and people would see that, but I think for me, a lot of times people would see my screen was just black, just blank. There's a lot of times I'm just not thinking. A lot of times I'm just not very fruitful thoughts at all. I was joking around with Paula about this the other day. I was in my office. I was tired as a disclaimer. And I had Pandora on and my headphones and I'm just banging away and I'm doing some weighty thing. It was like describing the doctrine of justification. It was real weighty, all these big long words. And then it just devolved. And then I caught myself going, whatever happened to Pearl Jam? Man, I love this song. (laughs) They just kind of disappeared, man. I was really into Pearl Jam. And for the next 10 minutes, that's all that would have been on my screen. What happened to Pearl Jam? I'm going on iTunes and I'm going to buy this album again. Um, but seriously, I think in the privacy of our inner, innermost thoughts, I mean deep down in the crevices, the dark, dark crevices, we think things and we feel things that we are never going to say out loud. And I think part of the reason we don't voice them out loud is because to say it out loud means that it's really there. It means that it's really true. And if it's true and it's there, that means that there's something wrong with us. It means that there's a problem. It means we have to contend with it. 
makes it real. So we just keep it locked away. We keep it all jammed down. And we ask ourselves questions like, well, maybe, maybe is it going to go away? Is it going to change? I mean, maybe these things that I think, where, where I, was I born with this? Am I going to have it forever? Maybe everybody thinks these things or feels these things. Maybe nobody does. We kind of go through those thoughts. One, one of the reasons, this is one of the reasons you see shameful addictions that people have or same-sex attractions, things like that. They're always kept way down. They're always repressed and buried. Because we think, I feel this way, and I think that's pretty bad. But to say it out loud means it's really there. It means there's no, there's no disguising. It means I really have to contend with it. That's why coming out of the closet is a phrase that's even used today. Because it nuances something that was repressed and hidden. Now out in the open, the posture is open before all to see, right? That's why we say that. Because it was something that was kept way down, just kind of shoved in the can and never spoken out loud. One of the things that I'm starting to hear Christians say more and more and more as they pull from those deep recesses in their heart, and it's very honest, and I appreciate it so much because it echoes what I've felt in the past. In fact, this whole sermon is very difficult for me today, to be honest with you. I hear phrases like this now, Luke, I just don't delight in God. I'm not satisfied in God, to be totally honest with you. I mean, Luke, I thought I would by now. I thought it would have just come. I thought it would just be satisfied by now. Like, it would just kind of come on me as I've been a Christian for a long enough time. I mean, I see other Christians, Luke, that they're satisfied in God. They take pleasure in God. They see the wonder of God, and I just don't. I mean, I like God, but delight in Him? I don't know about that. I mean, how do you delight in someone that you just don't delight in? How do you love something that you just don't love. I mean, Luke, I know the theology's right, and I'm convinced of what the Bible says, and I've heard the sermons, and I've heard the gospel, and there's not any of it that I would look at and say, I disagree, I agree with it all, but still, I just don't delight in God. I just don't find any satisfaction in God. It feels wrong to say that out loud, doesn't it? I mean, just in hearing me say it, doesn't it feel kind of dirty? But many of you, many of you are feeling that. I guarantee many of you, if I was to ask for a raise of hands, which I won't, many of you would say that you're there now. And if you're not, you might concede that you've been there in the past. And if not either one of those, you might be headed there in the future. As a Christian, there's going to be seasons of that. I think one of the things that this produces over time is a Christian that bases their walk with God and their understanding of the gospel, they base it all on hard, disciplined service. It's all about just serving God. Because after a while of not delighting in God, after a while of not being satisfied in God, we start to make excuses for it. Maybe this is the way it's supposed to be. I don't think pleasure and delight and satisfaction is even on the map. I don't even know why we talk about it, Luke. This is a stupid thing to preach about. All you got to do is just keep your head down and just quit whining about it. Just be tough. Just keep laying track. Pleasure, delight. I mean, all that matters is that you serve God, right? That's all that really matters. For some of you, that's where you've been for a long time, isn't it? That's why words like delight in God seems kind of foreign to you. It seems foreign to me. Words like being satisfied in God overwhelmed in God, wondrous in God's display. These things seem kind of distant from us, right? 
fascinated with God, intoxicated with the gospel. These are things that we don't catch ourselves saying because it just feels like it's not very tough. It feels kind of gushy to say that. Like that's something artists say, right? They use words like that. Or writers or musicians, but you don't have to have all that. All you got to do is just be tough. Let me tell you right now, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible are we called to grind out our obedience in order to please God. It's not in there. Nowhere in the Bible are we called to grind out and produce a performance and an obedience in order to please God. It's not in there. This isn't a service that God has ever called you to do. I'm already making some of you feel uncomfortable. That's good. That's good. It doesn't serve God in a good way for you to sputter segments of sentences and fragments and mutter out loud about how hard it is to serve God and how difficult it is to serve God. But man, you just got to do it. But delight and joy in your service are very, very, very far off. And now listen to this, and I never get tired of saying this, ever. Obedience, obedience in order to please God is failing to see that one better than us already came to please God in our stead. What I mean is, is we don't do things so that God does for us. We do things as Christians because God has already done for us. And if you swap those, you end up with a really big problem, a really big problem. When we obey God, because he is already pleased with us, that's called functional Christianity. But when you obey God so that he does something for you, that's called legalism. Catch the swap. It seems subtle, but if you move those two pieces, you end up with something very horrid. If you do so that God does for you, if you do so that you can secure favor, so that you can secure blessing, so that you can secure security from him, if you do those things just so God gives you and you keep doing it your whole life, friend, that's legalistic, works-based, shame-based obedience. It's very far from Christianity. And I think what we do in the church a lot of times is we are okay with legalism because we think it's almost a carbon copy of Christianity. It's, it's almost okay to be legalistic because at least you're trying hard to be a Christian, right? At least you're working really hard. Hey, we believe in the same God. We're doing the same things. I'm just doing it to get something from God. That's, that's like Christianity, right, Luke? It's not. It actually couldn't be any further from Christianity. It's not a close second place. It's not the silver medal. It's not a carbon copy. It's very, very distant. It's very important we don't swap those things. Jesus' obedience was so perfect. It was so perfect, and it was gifted to you that you can leave your shame-based obedience in the grave. You were actually won and rescued from that. But Luke, I thought we had to do stuff for God. Nope. You don't. You don't have to do stuff for God. Is everyone just thoroughly uncomfortable right now? It sounds like I'm preaching heresy. You get to do things for God. You enjoy doing things for God, but you don't have to do anything because Jesus already did perfect life for us, gave it to us, took our sleazy, just grimy life as an exchange. He has done it all. We get to do things, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But God is not glorified by your obligated service so that you can get something from him. He's not glorified by that. He's glorified by you delighting in him. He's glorified by you pleasuring in him. To rip off a statement that John Piper has said, probably one of the most powerful legacy statements he's ever said, preached, written about, whatever. He says this, and some of you will be able to finish it just as I 
say it out loud. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Let me say it again. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. That is what brings God the glory. But if we're not satisfied in him, that means that we're satisfied in something else, right? It means something else has captured our hearts. Something else has robbed our delight. Something else is satisfying us. That's what it means. Let's look at 1 John. John does something real beautiful in this. He does something that's very helpful. Some of you have read this passage a bunch your whole life. He juxtaposes two loves. That's a teaching technique, okay? It's going to help us a lot right here. John says this to the church. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, pause right there. This is what we're going to read there. John is not saying to not love the people in the world, by the way. And John is not saying to not care for the world or serve the world. He's not saying those because those are things that Jesus did. What he is doing is he is saying, listen, the world has values. It values certain things. Identity, comfort, security, glory, power. It, it, it vaults these things up and it worships these things and it aims all of its glory and delight and pleasure and satisfaction in these things. And these things are set up in opposition to God. And you are not to be satisfied with these things. That's what he's saying. He's contrasting them. These are two enemies. They're not rivals. We look at the love of the world and the love of the Father as kind of rivals, like competitive brothers. They're not. They're enemies. And they cannot exist at the same time in your heart. You cannot have both loves at the same time. That is what John is teaching us right here. To love and to desire and to be satisfied by the things of the world means that you are not satisfied and in love and delighted in the things of God, and vice versa. If you are delighted and fully pleased in the things of God, it leaves no room to be delighted and satisfied in the things of the world. That's why the juxtaposition is helpful. The contrast is helpful. But we do delight in the things of the world, don't we? I mean, we do. We chase after it. We chase after it with our broken hearts. Because we're broken inside. There's a piece of us the residue of Adam, the residue of broken humanity that still pines after the values of the world, the things that the world values, that's actually the piece of you that God is sanctifying, which means he's cleaning it, he's repairing it, he's building it, he's forming it, and he won't finish until either he comes back to get us or you die. Right? That's, when it, that's the path. But there still is something in us that leans into it. Our heart is inclined towards the things of the world. It's true. This is what, and we're going to put this quote up on the screen. This is a guy, his name is Thomas Chalmers, and he wrote an article and has preached a message called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's very helpful. If you want to read it, you can just look it up online. It's, it's accessible, but it is heavy reading, and it's very helpful. He says this, the world is the all of a natural man. Now, what he's talking about are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the heart to boast and take pride in what we have done and what, who we are. That, the world, is the all of a natural man. He loves nothing above it. He cares for nothing beyond it. And to bid him to not love the world is to pass a sentence of expulsion on all the inmates of his bosom. The Puritans would comment on this too. 
And they would say to just get rid of all of your desires for the world, to just flush them out like you'd be flushing a toilet or something like that, would be like annihilating yourself. That's the terminology that they would use. Maybe you have tried really, really, really hard to put down sin, right? And maybe when you became a Christian, some sins just went away. I mean, for me, some sins just went away. And some sins just weren't that hard to see leave. But then there were those other sins, right? The ones that kind of nip at your heels and demand your disgrace, and they're always barking at you, and they're always threatening to expose you. Those things are hard to put down. And you tried everything, haven't you? And then you've tried everything again. And then you've tried everything again. And you've tried everything again. And then you went off and you tried everything again. And you added a couple books. And then you've tried everything again. And you added yet another accountability partner. And you've tried again. And you've tried everything again and again and again. And it still disgraces you. I'd like to introduce you to somebody. This guy, his name is Raiden Temamon. And I'm almost positive I screwed his name up, but he's long dead, so I'm okay. I know I said his first name right because that was a character on Mortal Kombat, Raiden. But he weighs over 375 pounds at his peak, and his record is stated right there. It's almost a 90% win rate, almost. It's pretty amazing. He's considered one of the greatest sumo wrestlers of all time with a win rate of 9 out of 10. That's pretty amazing. Now, what chance do you and I have squaring off in the ring with a guy like that? I mean, statistically, we have less than 10%, right? But, I mean, realistically, we have far less than that, like less than 1%. We don't have a chance. I think many Christians feel and may, may not even say that this would represent the desires they have for the things of the world. The things they just cannot put down, immovable, indestructible, imposing. I mean, they're just staring at their sin and their love for the sin. And at the very same time, they have no delight and pleasure in God. And it's all happening at the same time. God is not here, but my love for this sin sure is. And that seems to be in existence for a lot of Christians, right? It's something that we would never really say out loud, though, is it? It's something that we feel... It's something that we go over in our hearts, but even the people we love, I mean, it's just not really likely for us to say, hey, let me just tell you something, man. I've been thinking about this. I'm really much more delighted and take pleasure in my sin much more than I do God. We just don't say stuff like that. Not all of us. We don't say things like that. But we do have a playbook for this situation. It's not a good one. I mean, it's a broken playbook. It's full of broken plays, but we still call them. One of these plays is, is to reason and use logic to convince ourselves and maybe others, but especially ourselves, that that sin is stupid. It's stupid to do this sin. I don't even really know why I do it. I mean, it's just dumb. I mean, when you think about it, it's just stupid. It's not even logical for me to do this. I mean, I, I look at the Word, and I agree with God, and it's hurting me, and it's hurting the people around me, but it's just stupid. I'm, j I'm just going to quit doing it just because it's dumb. It just makes sense to just quit, right? We do this, but we don't really use logic, and we don't really use reason whenever we chase our affections, do we? We use our heart. We use our heart. It's instinctually part of us that our broken heart pines for those things, even though it's against logic and it's against reason. This is why smart people sin. <laughs> 
If logic and reason is all we need, we don't even need Jesus anymore. We just need more schools. But there's smart people all over the place. I mean, there's wise, brilliant people all over the place, and they are just chained up in all kind of bondage and pattern sin. It's because logic is not the problem. Reason is not necessarily the problem. This is also why some of you might know someone with an eating disorder, or they might have a heavy addiction. They might be addicted to pornography or something like that. And you might try to reason with them. Hey, don't you see this is blowing up your marriage? Don't you see this is killing you and your life? And I mean, listen, they're not stupid. They get that, right? Don't you understand that eating disorders are, I mean, logically, let me just tell you what eating disorders do. You don't think they know that? They know that. It's not logic. It's not a logic issue. I mean, take Raiden here, for example. What if you walked into this room the room of your heart, and Raiden's there, this raging monster of desire for the things of the world. If he really wants to be there, your reasoning and logic is not going to move him. Not if he really wants to be there, right? Even if you're really, really, really smart, man, and you've got six PhDs, if you came in and just said, listen, it's really stupid that you're in here. It's not even logical. And I'm about to go on a 90-minute excursus of why it's just illogical and ridiculous for you to even be standing here, right? Agreed? So we're going to talk this through. If you just did that and you just turned into a total nerd and you tried to reason with this guy and logic with him, if he does not want to leave, friend, he's not going to leave. It's a broken play. Another one that we call out of this dysfunctional playbook is just to double down. Double down in our discipline and add more rules. Add more parameters. Change our behavior, right? I'm going to read some books. I'm tired of that sin. I'm reading a book on it, but only if it's free online, you know, right? I'm going to get some filtering software put on my computer. I'm not going to just, I'm not going to just belly up with one accountability partner. I'm going to get three, you know? I'm going to wake up early every morning, and I'm going to pray an extra hour until I beat this sin. I'm going to podcast John Piper. Until this sin is gone, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to memorize the Bible, starting today. And we start adding all these things. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with memorizing the Bible. There's nothing wrong with waking up early. John Piper's fine. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. But none of those exclusively will put down the sin in your life. It won't. Why? Because your broken heart wants these things more than it wants to follow rules, more than it wants to follow a protocol. Your heart wants this because it's broken. It's broken. And the things of the world, it promises you that it will satisfy you and give you more delight than waking up early every morning and listening to a podcast. Take Raiden again, for example. Now you walk into the room of your heart. Of course, logic didn't work. He's still there. So you frown. And you get really mad at him. All right. We had a talk, and I was totally logical with you, but you're not listening to me. So now I'm going to be mad at you, right? And I'm going to give you a curfew. You've got to be out of here in two hours. All right, three. All right? So in four hours, you have to be out of here. <laughs> and I'm going, to, I'm going to put up a little list of rules up here on the wall so you can see, right? And a little video link down there that you can watch showing you your behavior on how you get out of this room and how you should exit this room. And just to prove it, I've got some witnesses to see how mad I am at you right now. But guess what? Is he leaving? Not if he really wants to be there. Not if that raging desire for the things of the world really, really wants to be there. He's not going anywhere. He's not. Friend, your sinful desire for the things of the world is not a logic problem. 
And your desire for the things of the flesh, it's, it's not a rules problem or a performance problem. It's a heart problem. It's a crack in your heart. What you need is an object for your affection that is better than the affection you have for sin. You need a bigger object to catch your affection. You need a bigger object to desire. This is what Tim Chester says on this. This won't be on the screen. And we've used this quote before, I think several months back or maybe even a year back. He says, the only effective way to resist the gravitational pull of the world upon us is by means of a force that is even stronger. The more we love God, the less we will love the world. The more we love God, the more we will, we will value his approval and the more we will be able to withstand the pressure brought to bear upon us by the approval of peers or the rewards of society. What we need to get the sumo wrestlers out of the rooms of our heart is to go and get a bigger sumo wrestler. Go and get a bigger sumo wrestler. Hey, Raiden, this is one I'd like to introduce you to. And he doesn't weigh 375. He weighs 675, and he's going to break your face. And we're all going to listen to Pearl Jam. (laughs) What we need is an object of such deep, deep affection that it floods and expels out all other affections. You've got to hear this. You've got to hear this. We need an affection that is so solid that we delight in that it robs. It makes makes not even essential. It's a a mute point to have any affection for anything else. We need to be overwhelmed to the point where nothing can steal away our delight and satisfaction. We need something that ruins our taste for any other taste, for any other thing. We need a love that expels and presses out other all loves. That's what we need. This is the only way to beat sin. Hear it. This is the only way we can beat sin. This is the only way to put down sin. It is the only way to put down sin. Luke, I disagree. Luke, I disagree. Because I read a book once, and it helped me. And it got rid of that sin. It just disappeared. It taught me stuff I didn't know. I put a couple corridors in place, a couple walls here and there, and the sin just disappeared. Friend, let me explain what happened to you. If you put down a sin without pressing God in in its place, you just picked up another sin. You just picked up another sin. Did you get rid of an addiction? You just picked up another one. Unless you filled that place with God, you might have given up meth, you might have given up weed, you just picked up something else. You might not be serving this identity issue you had over here, you just picked up another one over here. This is the nature of our grabbing and grasping heart. We always have to have an object to behold and pour our desire and delight and satisfaction into. It's just the way we are. It's the way we are. Our hearts revolt against pure emptiness, just avoid being there. See, putting down sin is just not enough. Stop sinning. Just managing your sins, especially the inconvenient ones, just managing your sins, it's insufficient unless God floods it out with a deeper affection for himself. It's totally insufficient because whenever you delight in God, it leaves no room for delighting in the world. So how do we get this thing? How do we get delight for God? How do you just get, does it just come? Do you do something? How do you, how do you just get satisfied in the things of God, right? I mean, does it just arrive when you've been a Christian long enough? Do you, what do you do? Listen, pray. Oh, hear me. Pray. Pray consistently. Pray passionately. Pray earnestly that you would be delighted in God. Does that sound weird to say? 
pray that you would be delighted in God. Ask God to awaken your heart and give you even a capacity to be satisfied in him. It sounds weird. Hear me out. Pray that God would give you the desire to love him more. Pray that God would give you a love that would go deeper for him. This is what it says in Philippians 2. We will put this on the screen, and some of you have already turned to it. Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this is key right here. Verse 13 is key. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is showing us something right here that is pretty, it bothers us. It shows us as being very passive. We're not really doing anything in this. I mean, yeah, you're doing something, but you're not really. God is doing it through you. And yeah, you have a will to do things, but not really because God is giving you the will for it. See, we don't like that because we're independent, prideful people and we want the glory for the things that we do. We even want the glory for thinking the things that we think. But the truth is, is the only reason you even feel like getting up and doing anything for God's glory is because God has given you the capacity, the revelation, and the power to do any of that. It's not about us. It's just not about us. It's about him. He even makes it about him and brings the glory to himself. And what does it say? It says it's for his good pleasure. Look at Hebrews 13. The author of Hebrews, he does something very similar to this. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now this God. May this God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here, right here, the author of Hebrews is saying basically that we are equipped and worked in to do anything for God that would be to his pleasure. He's saying the same thing. But again, we don't like this very much because it's not about us. We want it to be about us. We have this thing. It's part of the crack nature of our being. We have this thing in us that says, God, thanks for rescuing me from death. Thanks for breaking me free from the bondage of sin, but I got it from here. I got it. Catch. I got it from here. I can take it. Thanks, though. I mean, thanks, seriously. But I got it from here. I can work for you, God. I can want to do the right things, God. I can do this. I can have passion for you. Watch. You know? That's, that's what we do. Look at 1 Corinthians. This is my favorite. Paul, again, to the church of Corinth, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul says, virtually, I worked my butt off. When others were sleeping, I was working. When they were retreating, I was working. When they were mocking me, I was working. When they were loafing, I was working. When they were doing whatever, I was working, I was working, I was working, but I wasn't really working. It was God's grace working through me. Paul himself recognizes that it's just not about him. Listen, folks, we fight, the fight of faith, we fight, but God gives us the fight so that we can fight. Think about it. This brings modesty to our Christianity. We obey God but only if God gives us the gift of obedience to obey him with. (laughs) I hope I'm turning some of your theologies totally on its head. I really do. 
We repent, folks. We repent. But only if God gives us the gift of repentance to even want to repent. The only reason you ever want to repent, the only reason that ever even comes up in your life is because God has given you the desire to repent and turn from your sin. We love, but that's only because God has given us the ability to love. We delight in God. Hear this. We delight in God, but only because God has given us the ability to have any delight in him. We're satisfied in God, but only because God has given us the gift of satisfaction in him. (laughs) To me, this is humbling. To me, this is humbling to know that I cannot produce the joy that glorifies God. I can't manufacture it. You can't either. You know as well. We can't just make it happen. I can't produce and manufacture the obedience that glorifies God. I can't even do that. I cannot produce the delight that magnifies God. I can't produce the satisfaction. I can't produce the wonder, the fascination with the God. I can't produce that. I can't make that happen unless God gives it to me as a gift. Think about it this way. I'm going to zoom out just a little bit. Think big picture. Initially, initially, you did not love God unless he brought love to you so that you could love him, right? Now, I know some of you, you might be askew from this theology. Let me explain how it works. You did not select God for many options and invite him into your heart. That's not what happened. You didn't even know to do that until he wrecked you. He was already there. He already cracked your heart, took your heart of stone out, put a heart of flesh in to where you could even see your sin. He had already invaded your space. The only reason you ever loved God is because he loved you first. He brought the gift of love that you could even respond, right? Initially, you were not able to love or delight in God of your own account. You can't do it continually either. It's a very, very passive role. Think about it. You weren't just some sick person that chose God. You were a dead, bloated corpse under the ground, no breath, and he brought you to spiritual life. That's passive. You didn't do anything. Adopted. We're adopted into a family. Passive. You didn't do anything right? Born again into a new kingdom. Passive. You didn't do anything. Why is the Bible using all this passive terminology for God's role in our life? Answer is because we didn't do anything. He invaded and he grabbed us. Well, Luke, but I made a decision. You sure did. You sure did. It was irresistible. Your heart flooded towards him. That's what the Bible calls regeneration. You can see it in Titus. He changes our heart to where we can even look at our hands and go, oh my goodness, look what I've done. And then look at God and say, oh my goodness, look what you've done. That's not of our own manufacturing. We don't just get that because we're smart, right? This is how it works continually as well. Not just initially, but continually. This is how we live our Christian life. William Grinnell, an old Puritan, he would always compare the Christian walk in this regard to a wine glass full of wine but with no stem or base to it. He says it's useless if it's not in the hand of the one who carries it. It doesn't make any sense. It can't even do its own job. It can't even perform its function unless one who is greater than it holds it. It's the terminology he uses for this idea. So pray earnestly. Pray continually. Pray passionately to be delighted in God, to be satisfied in God. We never really do this, do we? I mean, I pray, and I know you do too. We pray, but we always pray for God to do things, don't we? We want him to move in some areas. God, save us, do this, move this, give this, bring this, fix this, kill that, shut that, right? We want God to do things, but 
How often, friend, do you find yourself on your face, gut poured out, begging God to change your desires? Asking him, God, give me a desire to love you more. Lord, I want to be satisfied for you. I want a de- uh, just a deep, big affection that floods out all affections. How often do we do that? I think what happens is we think it just comes naturally. I think we just think it just comes. The, the whole desire thing, right? Which is odd because the culture and the society we live in, there's always steps to do something. Ten steps to better abs, right? Eight steps to better breastfeeding. Three steps to build a better app. Twelve days to be a better runner. There's always steps. We always think in progression. But when it comes to this, we think it's just going to come. Desire. It's just going to show up. You know, in his famous, it's legendary, it's going to be classic. In his work, When I Don't Desire God, John Piper, and when he's taught this before, I've heard him teach it as well. He teaches his system, and he's got a little bit of a system of praying this through. Because even John Piper, believe it or not, has a struggle with his heart being inclined and delighting in God. Imagine that. He says, so I pray according to a line. He says, I-O-U-S, I-O-U's. Now, you come up with your own. We all have our different one. Mine doesn't look exactly like um, John's, but it, it is very similar. He says, I, incline my heart towards you, Lord. Every day he prays this. I, incline my heart towards you, Lord. Why? Because naturally the flesh tips our heart in the wrong direction. We naturally want the things of the world, but we can ask God to incline our heart in a different direction. Right? He gets that from the Psalms. Incline my heart to your testimonies, O Lord, and not to selfish gain. Oh, open my eyes. He gets that from the Psalms as well. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Why open your eyes? Because if God does not open your eyes, it's just ink on a page. It's just words out of a mouth, right? You, unite my heart. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Why unite your heart? It's a weird thing to pray, right? But my heart's fragmented. I don't know about you. It's scattered. It's here, and then it's here, and then it's Pearl Jam, and then it's work, and my foot hurts, and I'm hungry. I've got to go to the bathroom. I need, <laughs> I need God to take all of that and whoosh, right together. Because in the minutia of our lives, we forget the big picture really fast. Really fast. But when we walk with a united heart, fearing the Lord, walking hard after his word, it resets and redefines all of our other affections, needs, and temptations. It resets it all. S, and my favorite one, satisfy me, Lord. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Why? Because left to myself and you left to yourself, we are not satisfied in God. Right? Being satisfied and being delighted in God is not for gushy people. It's for all of us. And none of us have a proclivity towards that. Ask God, pray earnestly, to God, that you would be more delighted in him. Does that just seem too easy? As I read the scriptures, it just seems too easy. Let me just challenge you today. Some of you, you do a really good job of asking God to come in and be a big affection of your life, but you're not really wanting to let go of any of the other affections. You actually think that you could have competing desires in your heart. You actually think that you're pulling it off okay, but you're not. You're not. The singular affection that floods out all others, it demands the entirety of your heart, the entirety of it. What you need to do is yield your rebellious independence and ask God to put in you a satisfaction for his good pleasure. Some of you, you've been dying under the weight of the same oppressive pattern of sin for years and 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 and you've done it silently 
or if you've told anyone, they're probably not in this room, right? Not anyone you do life with. But you've been under this heavy cloak of continuous sin and you just cannot seem to crack through. Let me just appeal to you, friend. Let me appeal to you to beg God. Beg God. Ask God. Ask your Father to give you the gift of delight in Him. To be satisfied in Him. When you are satisfied and delighted in God, you want nothing else. What the world offers, not attractive. Not attractive. No hunger for it anymore. You can't just put down sin because it seems smart to do it or because you've come up with good rules. You can't do that. You need a bigger affection. There's a vacuum for all of your delight and all of your satisfaction. Let me tell you, some of you in here, this will be the last thing I say before we pray. Some of you in here have never, ever delighted in God in your life. You've never done it. You've never been satisfied in God. You don't even know what that looks like. But Luke, I did something in church camp. But Luke, I, I was six. I was 14. I was 18. I was, God did something in me at that time. Well, listen, and this is what John Piper says, and I agree with him. The word or the phrase that says, I am saved by faith and Jesus is not my treasure is an oxymoron. It's an oxymoron. I am saved by faith and Jesus is not my treasure is an oxymoron. Yes, as Christians, we go through seasons of that. I've been through a bunch of seasons where I just don't want God. I just don't desire him. I don't have a passion for him. And I have to, at that time, beg him to incline my heart towards him. Open my eyes. Show me where I am at. Give me satisfaction for him. Give me a bigger delight. I have to do the same thing that John Piper does. That you have to do. We all have to do that. But some of us have never tasted that before. Never. Let me tell you, today is not a good day to walk away from this. Today is not a good day to do that. Listen, that, that raging sumo wrestler in your life, whatever it is, that's been trying to rob you and tell you how much pleasure it can deliver, all it's doing is over-promising and under-delivering. It cannot deliver the product. It never has, and you know it. Today is the day to beg God for a bigger affection to come into your life that will flood out all others, that you be ruined for anything but God and his glory for the rest of your life. And it's that irrepressible, expulsive power of a new affection in your life that starts to flood and press all the sin out. That's how you kill sin. It's by a new life. God comes in and passively revamps us, and he continually does it our whole life. So I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me, because I'm going to pray for you. I really want this time of worship today to be a time of response. That's what Kevin had explained earlier. This is really a time of response for you right, to respond to these things. If you're not used to the language that I'm not used to, which is, God, give me a delight to delight in you. Give me a satisfaction to be satisfied in you. Today is a day you really want to develop that fluency with God. Do it in this time of worship. And we have tables in the back. We have tables in the back where we take communion. So if you're new here, communion is just a visual example of the gospel for us. It both looks back to see what Jesus did on the cross with a broken body and spilt blood as we take it in community. And it actually forecasts to the future to show us another communion that comes where we will share it with Jesus at the very end of all ends. So it's a very important thing for us to gather around as a church. Listen, if you're not a Christian, don't worry about it. Just hang out and sing the songs. Just enjoy it. But if you're a Christian, I would just ask you to take it with community to the best of your ability, with your wife, with your family, with your missional community, and make that a time about praying corporately as much as you can. 
but I really want you to focus on what it is that God is doing in your life throughout the whole process. Okay? Let me pray for you.